You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Before we get into this interview, a quick reminder about a live Comedian's Comedian special with Gary Delaney at the end of this very week. Sunday the 2nd of March at the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton. Gary Delaney is going to do a set and then I'm going to interview him about the stuff he's just performed. That's this Sunday. So if you're in the Midlands, come along to that. It's going to be awesome. Now though... Very excited about this one, another one live from the Edinburgh Festival in the Gilded Balloon. This is Missouri-born and now living in the UK, the utterly unique one-man sketch show that is Will Franken. (laughs) Nice move. Will has deliberately walked on as slowly as possible. Thank you. You're kind. Hello, Will. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Do, do feel free to take that. Is it cool that. to do like Stephen Hawking at this thing? Hello, how are you doing today? It's it, just good to see you. <laughs> that, that was an unbelievable impression. It's weird. It's on a boom. I like it. We were all about to be offended, and then that was actually very realistic. Thank you. Well done. Cheers. <laughs> so welcome, Will. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks for having me. How, um, how is your Edinburgh experience going? How are you finding it? This is, is your most, second French. I find it to be the most amazing... Uh, profit-making experience ever. Just, uh, <laughs> I'm going to come away from this thing so loaded <laughs> and without having spent a single dime of my own, and it's just amazing. Oh, the, the Fringe Festival. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's really eating me. It's just, yeah. yeah just... It's, uh, are you finding it expensive? How's your show going? Are you getting bums on seats? Are you getting yeah, I'm getting bums on seats, but it's the, it's the 540 time. It's, okay. uh, it's hard for what I do. You know, last year I was at 1030, and... And uh, this year, I'm getting a lot of uh, pedestrians. Sure. You know, Carol, there's a comedy show on, and then I don't want those people in my show. I want the drunk ones and the drug addicts and the <laughs> prostitutes and the, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. But, okay. But so, they're, they're getting better, though. I mean, last week, they've started to... And, sure. and every time you get a crowd get you like that, you're like, okay, you've restored faith in my own insanity. Yeah. So... Yeah, like that. So let's well, mm-hmm. let's just uh, talk a little bit about what you do for the benefit of anyone here who hasn't seen mm-hmm. you. What what you do is it's pretty much unique. I don't think I've I've seen anyone do, well, do you. an act like yours. Uh, it's well, structurally, it's Monty Python. Okay. You know, so when anybody says what's your influence, it's the uh, when I was fourteen, I saw my first episode of Flying Circus out there in Missouri, and okay. uh, it used to come on at midnight. Uh, PBS would air it, the public broadcasting system, and and there at midnight at fourteen years old, I remember seeing an episode of Flying Circus and thinking that I wasn't alone in the world. Yeah. That, and it was, it was something that st- the first joke I remember was uh, they had an animation of the word hostile with an exclamation point and there was a voiceover that said, hostile. And then when I saw how each little thing connected into the next, sure. I remember thinking, I want to do that. I've never done conventional stand-up. So, okay. So I, first open mic I ever did at 16, it was like, it was like that. It was like one man sketches that, you know, segued 
into into others and had no beginning and end. And That's it. I don't think yeah. I've never seen a, a one man sketch show before. I've mm. seen kind of one man character shows, but mm. you, you're using an incredible volume and density of characters and oh, genres and accents and everything. And they do mm. they they sort of they slide and segue beautifully into one another. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is and that's that's a style that you've have you have you encountered anyone else doing a similarly one man version of that? I haven't I haven't seen a live version of it. I, I think Mr. Show. Uh, okay. you're familiar with uh, yeah, I know that a little bit from yeah. the late 90s HBO mm-hmm. they, they did the same thing American style with two guys but it was still televised and I, I haven't seen it live myself okay but, so uh, you, you've invented your own genre oh no no I don't want to say that I get in trouble <laughs> yeah, okay. no no you, you say that I, uh, I, okay. I just do what I do you know so when you were a 14-year-old growing up in Missouri mm-hmm. were you kind of a, a weird kid did you feel that you were oh absolutely yeah, yeah. okay and um, was ashamed of it I always tried to be somebody I wasn't I mean for a deep person I'm very shallow Okay. <laughs> and so I always try to – I, I did an English accent when I was like uh, nine or ten uh-huh. and uh, meet girls at school. And I would, I'll pretend to be from a place called Cheltenhamshaw, you know, and just talk like that. And my dad's a scientist. And, uh, you know, and then over the years I found that, you know, you could lie doing characters and you could avoid emotional intimacy. Okay. I've had some girlfriends where like the, the whole first date I've been – I've been my friend from Coven, you know, who's from, from Coven, Ireland, and just talk like that for the whole date. <laughs> You know, because I didn't really want to be with her, but she had a nice body. Yeah. yeah like that, you know, so. But, uh, yeah, because it, it, the hardest character to play is yourself, you know. So, like, I remember as a kid, you know, like, you go on dates. I said, what do you what do? You do? Be yourself. And I, like, I had no conception of what that meant, you know. Okay. So the idea of seeing mm-hmm. Python and, and kind of going, oh, there's, there's other guys out there who are, what, idiots? Or that have, no, what, what, what no. was it? What element of it was that, that, that struck you, that attracted you? Well, I knew there was something highbrow about it. Like, I remember, uh, you know, at 14, I, I didn't get a reference to Kierkegaard. But I remember when Eric Idle would say, coming up next, it's Kierkegaard's journals. And I would hear that, and I, I would know that I at least had to pretend to sure. get it. Because the type of people I wanted to impress were always the smart ones, you know, which is a little bit snobbish. But, you know, I wanted people to think I knew what Kierkegaard was. Because I knew that Python would go highbrow and lowbrow. Yeah. They had the everything but the kitchen sink approach, sure. which is like you've, the character names have to be funny. The, the segues have to be funny. Uh, you can go real guttural. You can go real high. And there was a cell phone, and that is just not right. No. Uh-uh, uh-uh. I have told you once. I have told you once again. And I've told you once a third time. And that's it. I'm not going to tell you once again. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. In the defense of those people, I was bullying them into sitting at the front at the yeah. time when I should have been saying, turn off your mobile. Well, you should have sent them to the phone booth. You yeah. Know, there's a phone booth here. <laughs> so you're, you're, the show that you're doing here, is, mm-hmm. is that an original show that you've written for this festival? I stole it all or, from a 16-year-old kid. <laughs> or or does, it, does it contain elements of previous work? Because I was looking at mm-hmm. your website, mm-hmm. and I don't think I'd realize just the volume of material that you've produced. Oh, cheers. Yeah. So we so – when, when we saw you do, I mean, I, I, I saw your show last year at the Fringe. Mm-hmm. That, that was your first yeah, visit first fringe, yeah. to Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what motivated that, that choice to come to Edinburgh? Somebody paid for the whole thing. Oh, sweet. <laughs> I, I, I was in New York doing the Fringe Festival out there, and, and for, I think for about seven years people said, you've got to do the Edinburgh. Edinburgh? I still Ed- can't say it. Edinburgh. 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 And um, I remember there was, a, there was a spread in the New York Times, and it was uh, the pitch of the Royal Mile, and I said, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> it looked like hell with the, you know, somebody with the biggest an ego as I have. I mean, mm. it's, uh, you know, and then, God, what was it? Yeah, last year, somebody saw five minutes of my stuff, and this guy was an entertainment lawyer, but he, he did production as a hobby, like okay. every fringe. And 
I remember th- he said he needed to check his account and then get back to me in three days. And I remember because th- I love the UK. I went out here in 07 and, and I, all my influences are British. So mm-hmm. to me, it was just like it was all a money issue. And I waited three miserable days for him to get back and say, yeah, we can cover the lodging and the airfare and all that. And yeah. you know, I came out here, it was a, it was a big adventure because I'd never been to Scotland. And, sure. You know, I get to go to places like Drem. <laughs> You know about Drem? I've never yeah. heard of Drem. Okay. It's, a, it's a stop on the way to North Barrack. It's really it's, next okay. station is Drem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like a Middle Earth, you know. <laughs> really cool. But uh, but this year, I'm much. I've been living in the UK since February, and it's okay. like uh, you know a lot of the day to day stuff, like you know people paying for gigs three months down the road, and you know sure. living off of Marks and Spencer cheese because I got a gift card and uh, yeah. Yeah, it's good okay. cheese, but it gets old after a while. Is that, was that, that's a tangent, man. I don't even know. No, where no, we that's fine. That. We can, we've got that, time for cool? tangents. That's okay. okay. Right on, right on. So, uh, so you having come here to the festival last year, mm-hmm. you decided to stay effectively, and, that, and now you've yeah. moved permanently to the UK. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got to keep whipping out those three month visas, and then eventually go back to okay. apply for full time. But uh, yeah, I, I'm really down in the states, and I, and I worry that Britain's. Um, I'm very down on Sky TV. This isn't going to screw things up for you, is it? <laughs> no, 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 no. Because that's what, what I think made Britain uh, great when it came to televised comedy was it had a limited number of channels. And so there was, I, there was this notion that the cream must rise to the top. Okay. And I think with Sky TV coming in, it's going to be more of the sure. internet, reality TV. Britain's got talent. And it's, you know, I hope, I hope you guys don't forget what made you great. As far back as Swift and Chaucer, you know? Sure. Um, I'm serious. I mean, I think I think one of the last great figureheads in, in satire was Chris Morris, and uh, yeah. he's kind of in hiding right now. But uh, sure, you know, you see something like the day to day, and it's just like it's mind blowing, razor, it? razor sharp, but also absurd. It's like you know, just taking a knife to everything, but also keeping this like real surreal framework to everything. So, sure. you know, and I, I hope that. Uh, tradition still continues out here, you know? so well let's let's stay with your kind of your your development as a, as a comic from mm-hmm. from that first moment when you were 14 to mm-hmm. when you started to to perform for other people mm-hmm. what were the what were what were early gigs of yours like what, for, what kind of environments were you doing them in even first gig i ever did was a, a coffee shop when i was 16 uh with uh some i had two mates and we were we were all weird in our own way but the two, <laughs> they wanted to be in a rock band and i said we got to do a sketch troupe forget the rock band I can say fuck the rock band, right? Yeah, you can say okay. that. I got in trouble. Like, I was on Castle FM today, and I, I said shit. And then last year, they censored me because I said penis and vagina. <laughs> I gave, what, they said, what's an example of a bit? And I go, I, marry, I, have a, I play a vicar, and I marry a penis and a vagina. I'll say it. Let's call it dumping it, dumping it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's clinical terms. Okay? Yeah, so yeah. I, because I feel like part of me is not going, well, you know, I fooled around uh, sometime with comedy, and then I fooled, no, I fucked around with comedy. Uh, so when I was 16, I, yeah, I did a coffee shop, and there, there must have been like 15 people in there, and I'm assuming 10 were friends of ours. And, mm-hmm. But it was like that. It was like a relay thing. Like three of us, you know, were doing a sketch, and then one would wind around. It was, it was a Python framework. Mm-hmm. And then I think... A couple of years after that, it was open mics, and I took a long time getting started. You know, mm-hmm. I made po- I made uh, cassette tapes and sold them to friends, and and did the occasional thing. But Springfield, Missouri, there wasn't sure there was one. You open was mic you were sell- you were selling cassette tapes to your friends. Yeah, I was teaching. That's incredibly uh, yeah. innovative, really. Kind of. It was just me talking to myself as these characters. I got a four track recorder when I was a kid, and I just you know you, you come back in, you speed up the pitch, you get a woman's voice, you come back in over the top, yeah. you do a male voice, then you got. You got four of you going at once. It's I was going to ask that. Actually, yeah. I put something about one guy with a four track because yeah. the, the, the material that's on your website. There's loads and loads of content, loads of MP3s. Some of them are clips from gigs, and others of them. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you do a podcast as well, which mm-hmm. is a, a, again, it's not like any other podcast I've heard. It's oh, your it's your own radio show. 
Yeah, pretty much. It's they're like albums to me. Yeah, like a, yeah, something yeah. that down the road I can smoke a joint and put on the headphones, and you know, I still do that, and I really I like them. I just couldn't isolate like because um, I used to really really isolate with comedy. You know, just, how'd you mean isolate? Well, with those cassette tapes, for example, that was me just sitting in my room, pretty much doing comedy as therapy. I didn't have a live setting, and then I would go do the open mics, and those those were actually good. I mean, I, they were fun, but most of the time was spent just like talking to myself in a room, recording these things, and okay. you know, and I liked them. But uh, like now, the podcast I did for about two years, and mm-hmm. I think the last one I did was you know maybe three years ago, and I sure. just it's just hard to to isolate like that anymore. Gotcha. That's why. That's why it, you know, as frustrating as the fringe is, it's great to be out among people and yeah, you know, talking in a live setting and stuff. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know. And it's one of the. I was trying to have this conversation with my girlfriend about how why I love going to festivals so much. Mm-hmm. Part of that reason is that as a comedian, you get to feel like a normal person because everyone else yeah. is a comedian. Yeah, and that's incredibly valuable. You might not realize yeah. how isolating it can be to be a performer and Excellent. spend a lot of time on the road in your car absolutely. on your own. And I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's quite an interesting sort of uh, dynamic there, given that you are. You're effectively a sketch performer, mm-hmm. but you're a, a potentially a lonely one. You've got all the, oh, yeah. the work of the sketch groups, mm-hmm. but with the, the isolation of a stand-up. Pretty much, yeah. So when you, when you kind of moved on, when did, when did you first start hitting open mics, and what was that like if you were the only person on the bill doing what you were doing? I say, I say on the open mics, uh, I did a regular one in Missouri, for, you know, eight, well, maybe 20, 21, and then uh, moved to New York when I was 24, mm-hmm. and I got so disheartened because... See, I'm a hayseed. Do you guys know Missouri at all? It's right in the middle of America, and it's, it's hillbillies and white trash. And, you know, like, I was the first one in my family to go to college. I was the first one to, you know, my, my dad went to Vietnam, but that was not a trip or anything sure. like that. That was a, he had, he had other work out there. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I went to, to New York, and the, the attitude was like, why would anybody move to New York? And, you know, I, I thought I was good. This is how naive I was. I thought I was going to go there and just do comedy on the streets, and somebody from NBC would walk by and give me a show. Sure. So I've always believed I was, I was good at what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so for but ten years down the road, it, it's just like the industry will keep kicking in the ass, and it's like that's the challenge is to say uh, no, the stuff is good. It's just it's just that that's con- confusing. But I know I got off track here. But uh, but I moved to New York with these ideas that I was going to you know perform a lot and get mm. seen a lot, and and it was so frustrating because you'd show up at an open mic and the queue would be around the block, and it was a lottery. Yeah, so okay. you put I your, think the queue of other acts would be around the place. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you'd okay. finally you'd go up at like at three in the morning for two people. And I think I did that uh, twice. And I was trying to be a good boy, you know, follow the rules. And, mm-hmm. you know, coming from Missouri, we don't follow rules. There's, this, okay. there's an innate kind of working class, uh, you know, rage and stuff. So it's hard. No, no, that's how they do it here. That's how they do it. And I just, after I got into acting instead, I, I would get in like, um, I gave up on the open mic scene and, and did a lot of performance stuff in Greenwich Village and, okay. and off Broadway and okay. stuff. And, and when it, you say performance stuff, do you mean like being in other people's plays? Or yeah, do you yeah, mean Still doing your own. Mm-hmm. Did some voiceovers and okay. taught in Harlem for a year, uh-huh. and uh, it was just absolutely insane. What were, you, what were you teaching? Teaching voice, voice acting? No, no, English and social studies. Oh, I see. Okay. Sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, and okay. uh, because I didn't hate myself enough, I got a job with the inner city school system. <laughs> and uh, man, suck my dick, asshole! I am the teacher, you know. Like, <laughs> That's, you send them down to the principal's office. They come back up thirty seconds later, and they go, he said, "You got to deal with me, okay? Uh, you know, put a kid in a headlock." That was horrible. He deserved it. He des- and it was funny because the first day I saw this sixty-year-old teacher down the hall with a kid in a headlock. Oh my god! And I remember thinking, I'm just assuming that kid deserved it. I, don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I had 
I mean, I could tell a story if you're interested. Yeah, go so. on. Yeah, go for it. Does this have anything to do with your question? I feel like I'm. That's okay, but it's all right. I'm, we're building no, a picture. No, you stop. Of you stop okay. me because I, I could. I'm enjoying it. Okay, good. I will. Trust me, I'll stop. Well, you no, I had a week. I had a week. wheel, and I'll pin you down okay. when I want to. Well, I had, it's it's this, it's the great headlock story. I've been meaning to do it on stage for a while, but uh, it's you know there was a kid who was you know fucking around, and the one thing that they would do was read out loud. So they would nah nah suck my dick, motherfucker. And I go, all right, read. Martin Luther King was my greatest hero. You know, and then this one kid kept dropping his book on the floor. And he wouldn't go to the principal's office anymore because he realized that he didn't actually have to do anything that I told him to do. So, okay. But for some reason, they always wanted to help. So if you said, would you go get me a broom from the janitor's closet? He would, he would leave. So he left, and I locked the door. <laughs> and then about – he came back about 30 minutes later. and said, it, The kids were all, ah, Frankie locked him out. Frankie locked him out. Ah! And I, shut up. Shut up. You know, and then, uh, and then the kid came back. I was in the – you know. They were starting to quiet down, and the kids whispering through the door, Franken's a faggot. Suck my dick, Franken. Half of my mind is going, don't open the door. Ignore him. The other half's going, open that fucking door and squeeze the fucking life out of me. (laughs) And then it was really cool because all the kids ran out of the classroom, and they called for the principal. "Uh, Mr. Franken, go kill Dwayne. And then I remember seeing the, the principal's head. And it was, it's just, in one fell swoop, I let go of the kid, turned around and pointed at him and said, okay, Buster, cool it, cool it. And uh, then somebody, the other teachers got together and they said, look, if anybody complains, just say you were concerned about his safety. Okay, and, uh, right, okay. And the grandma complained and I said, you know, I was concerned about his safety, basically. Yeah. And I was trying to restrain him from harming himself. <laughs> and I have this thing where when I tell a lie, the back of my neck twitches because my head, yeah. was, my, my head was going, don't listen to me. <laughs> so, I okay. hope that was okay to tell that story. Absolutely, yeah. Right. So, I mean, we'll, I, I want to come back in, in a moment to um, your uh, to that, that development, how you mm-hmm. ended up on the circuit, the circuit you ended up on. Mm-hmm. But I think it's worth noting that your your work has so many different characters in it, mm-hmm. accents, voices, situations. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much, like you've seemed like you've had quite a varied life mm-hmm. that you see, you see everything as a starting point for the, the work that you do. Yeah. Do you think it's, do you think that's true? Do you think you're kind of like a, almost like a vacuum of just sucking up experience and turning it into. Yeah. Usually like, like I'll do a character sometimes if I hate somebody and I find that it's the best way to, okay. Yeah. My ex agent, who fired me because I asked for an advance for lodging. Am I allowed to talk about this? Yeah, anyway. absolutely. Um, but she had a she didn't she she reminded me of Eric Idle and Drag. Which okay. She'd do a lot of the no, but right, but no, but yes, but no, but, <laughs> but no, I don't, but I don't think, but yes, but no, and it was, you know, kind of a you know. So if I if something perturbs me with somebody, I'll usually grasp sure. onto that, and it'll it'll find its way into something, and then sometimes I do it out of love too. Like you may meet Richie from Calvin; he's a great guy, but you know, it's my way of sort of you know like. Carrying him with me wherever I go, you know. Okay. Uh, my dad, he's in a lot of my stuff, you know. Okay. In various manifestations. And, sure. Yeah. You know, it's weird because it's it's it is such a psychological working out of. Comedians are crazy people, mm-hmm. you know. Really, we're really damaged people, and that's what bothers me about the industry sometimes is that uh, the industry we, we we have an industry now in the entertainment industry that for the first time ever actually expects the comedians to be sane and normal. Yes. In other words, half businessman and yes. half funny, and there really is no compromise. Absolutely, you know? there's there's a lot of uh, there's, there's there are a few comedians around I can think of that really don't fit into that mold mm-hmm. at all. People like Ian Cognito, 
Yeah, exactly. I love him. We, we did a double header at the. It's uh, just Clapham. an amazing, amazing mm-hmm. comic. But no part of him has got any sound business sense. No, or it seems to me, you know, and that's why he's so funny. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I know it comes through that. Way. I know it's part of the reason. Yeah, complete that. Mm-hmm. That kind of wild nature of him is mm-hmm. exactly why you want to go and see him. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I take your point. I, I think it's interesting that now that's expected to be married to comedy as a career mm-hmm. and as a career mm-hmm. path and stuff like that. Well, yeah. let's let's just talk a bit more. So after sure. your after your uh, teaching experiences, mm-hmm. how did you go from the acting world back into doing the circuit or did, did you do the circuit were you ever on mixed bill clubs I, I don't no, really know much you about know what I, well I made $30,000 playing a, a, a French marquee for some dot com company that went belly up Okay, and I never had that much money in my life and I, all I remember spending it on is uh, chicken dumplings and, uh, and CDs I bought a CD a week back in the day when you had to buy music still <laughs> and then um, oh and then I bought a car and it was too expensive to park it in New York, so then I moved to North Carolina because it sounded pretty. Uh, moved in with a chick, and that was really horrible and did absolutely nothing. She was a lawyer, so we had nothing in common. Tro- trophy girl, though. Real hot blonde chick. <laughs> Real hot blonde chick with a shiny red car. And uh, then we broke up, and uh, I, I just took all my... Sh- I'd never been to San Francisco. And then I loaed up my car and just uh, drove from one end of the country to the other and uh, lived in my car for a couple of days. Okay. And um, I remember walking by... God, how old was I? I was 27. Mm. And I remember walking by a cafe in the middle of the day that said uh, comedy open mic. And it was like an hour away. And I, I said, should I do this? Should I? I mean, really, that's how, that's how lazy and slow I was about this whole thing. So as, as bitter as I am about things, I mean, I took my fucking time. You know? yeah. I was really scared. I was scared to make a lot of moves, you know. And so I ended up out there. It killed at the open mic. And the, the guy kept having me go back up and do more time. And, and within, God, within about a month, San Francisco was really good to me. It was like... Mm. I was getting paid 20-minute spots and, and stuff like that. And, and the best part was I felt like I was being rewarded for, for mm. the weirdness, you know? Yeah, I was absolutely. finally being seen. And, and, I mean, I don't and, know anything about the, the relative comedy scenes in San Francisco and New York mm-hmm. now or, or at that time. Mm-hmm. But do you feel that San Francisco valued weirdness more as a, as a city or is it with that particular club? Or what I, was I, it? Think, I think so, yeah. I think, I think New York does too. L.A., I'm very anti-L.A., Okay, because it really is a city of just image, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, they do want uh, that guy's got the right hairstyle. He's wearing the jacket that they wore on that thing, and it's really this meets this. And, and sure. but San Francisco has its own character, and, and you can still make money there, you know, in the in the theaters and stuff, you know, putting on one man shows. New York doesn't have the money anymore, but it's it still does have the anti anti PC. Um, okay, have a little bit of an edge, you know. Although it is becoming more like L.A., which is. Which is what I'm here. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, and I don't want you, the UK to go down that, that sure. road. Yeah. Do you think there's a danger that it might do? I mean, yeah. we, we've had I, the people have started doing bringer shows in the UK in a way that's that was horrible. never done. That's yeah. the thing that they used to do in New York, where in order there's so many stand-up comedians who wanted to work that night mm-hmm. for free that not only would you work for free, you'd also have to bring two friends with you in order to get on the bill. Yeah. In order to ensure that the club had a an audience, yeah. which is a terrible way to run an industry, and it's sort of born of desperation and greed, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I was in a, I hadn't, uh, haven't had a telly in 25 years. Okay. And, you uh, haven't owned a TV, you mean? No, no, but yeah. every time I'm in a hotel, I, I turn it on, you know, fall asleep to it, and that gives me ideas, too. I mean, television, instant ideas, because it's all nonsense. Sure. You know? I like the new biscuits, you know? What? Who's talking to me? What is, you know, you wake up with that at 6 in the morning in your head, and it's just like... Um, but I turned on, I hadn't watched TV since I've been out here. And I remember flipping through, I was in a hotel in Nottingham and I'm flipping through the TV going, this is rubbish. What are they doing? I mean, Britain's got talent. What is this? 
It just seems like this cheap sentimentality. Sure. That we, okay. Has that always been here? It has, it has. Uh, I don't, we'll put that to the audience. Has it? No. 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 Oh, this audience. This I think audience you're importing strong... it from America. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's our rhetorical device, and it didn't work for me, and I hope you guys don't take it over here. It's like mm. Oprah Winfrey, the whole... Sure. Tell me about when, the, it, when, when, your, when your child died. Yeah. Was that a sad moment? Yeah. <laughs> nah. Nah, it was because we had four others, so it was like, why not, you know? So this is Will. I first saw him at Edinburgh in the caves in 2012, and his opening number was him being an, like an actor who was playing a butler who kept looking at a member of the audience and demanding they deliver their supposed next line, which, of course, they didn't know, which would be the next cue for his line. That sounds weird to explain. It was even weirder to watch. It was absolutely brilliant. It was around midnight, and this mind-bending premise was just absolutely captivating. I love the rest of the show. I'm pleased to say he's going up again this year. Do catch Will Franken if you can. He's, I mean, he's obviously completely unique. Just listen to him. Loads of interesting stuff from him here as well. We'll get right back to that in just a second. Uh, now, I'm releasing an interview with Tim Vine next week. That's another one from the Gilded Balloon at last year's Edinburgh Fringe. And the week after that, we're going to release the Gary Delaney interview that I'm recording this very Sunday at the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton. There's still tickets available for that one, and it's going to include a performance from Gary as well. It's a proper live special like we did with Acaster and Benny Boot. Um, he's just an incredible joke writer and performer. You'll all know who Gary Delaney is. If you're a comedy fan, he's just... Most of the jokes that you've ever heard were written by Gary Delaney. I think that's probably fair. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of punchlines. And we're going to get stuck into what makes him tick and exactly how he creates all of that lovely gear. That's this Sunday, 2nd of March. Tickets are available from the Arena Theatre Wolverhampton's website uh, or through the ComCom Facebook group, which I'm pleased to say has just passed 1,000 members. So thanks, everyone, for joining that. I'm losing my place here in my little notes. And I can't stop because I've got too much on, so I'll bash through. Remember, you can join that to get advance warning on little odds and sods. Um, I generally release details on live shows on the mailing list first, then the Facebook group, and then on at ComComPod on Twitter. Um, and I try to stagger it so that you want to be on one or another of those. But I'm probably fooling myself that you're all glued to your computers, desperate to find out when the next thing happens. Um, all of the details for those are available at www.comedianscomedian.com. And that's also where you can leave a PayPal donation if you'd like to. Thanks, as ever, for those. If you'd like to email me, you can do that, info at comedianscomedian.com. And I've had so many warm and encouraging and inspiring emails. I'm probably due a wanker. So if you want to write it and slag off the show... I mean, that'd make a nice change in some ways. Uh, thank you, all of you who've been emailing me and saying really nice things. Much appreciated. Anyway, thanks for listening. Do keep telling your friends about it. I feel like the ball's kind of rolling now, and every day I see more and more people recommending it to their friends on Twitter. That's very positive to see, so thank you all. Now, let's get back to Will Franken. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. So you're in San Francisco. You found like you you felt like you'd found a place where your weirdness was being embraced. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. So what was the the kind of trajectory there? Have you were you doing kind of 
bigger, longer bills? Were you travelling as a comedian? Did you no. go on a circuit? What What was your situation? No, I could. I, I never had the travelling thing until I came out here. Uh, I basically, I had a, like a home theatre, and then I would have a fan base that would come back to that theatre on a monthly okay. basis. I did a little bit of travelling. That sounds then. brilliant. It was they'd fun. Come there, they'd come back to see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, although what sucks is you can't make friends with your fans, you know, and, yeah. I, and I would do that. And I'm one of these people that would just be, hey, what's your, I always ask what somebody's name is. I really loved your show. Oh, thanks. What's your name? You know, because mm-hmm. it, it is weird to go like, because there's, there's that working class side of me that's like, I didn't do anything. I just did some funny voices. I didn't actually build a house, you know. Sure. Um, but uh, please remind me. Bring me back. I just got totally derailed. There. No, no, that's, oh my that, God. that's fun. That's fascinating. I was talking about having your own, having the difference between yeah. having a venue. That, that well, I think, is, is what all comedians want, is to be able to have yeah. their own venue that people come to to see them, certainly in the UK, and not need yeah. to hack up and down motorways every night. Well, I love the hacking up and down. What, what was great about that, though, was it did force me like every month. It was kind of like a mini fringe because I would do an hour and a half show and I would write a brand new 90 Minutes what? Every month, and I would title the show because that's how I made my money. That's how I paid my rent. Okay. So I would say, "What's the title of the show?" And it'd be like, "What was one of them? Uh, uh, Grandpa's not fitting." Sure. You know, this weird line would come to me, and then about two weeks before, I'd be like, "Holy shit, I got to write a show!" And you know, okay. all the marketing. Had so you'd write done. ninety minutes of material. Yeah, yeah. In two weeks, For and about, then would you do it once, or would you do like a run of? Yeah, that it was material? a one. It was a one off. I did. I did two runs. But this is insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so unusual. Okay. Yeah. It is very unusual. It was bad marketing strategy, I think. I mean, I had that fan base that came, came back. Sure. And it was a nice shot of cash, you know, once a month. Okay. It, was, it would be your money for rent. And well, let's look, at the, let's look at the yeah. writing process. How do, you, how do you come up with 90 minutes of material in two weeks? How do, how do you, what were any of the, the starting points, the processes that you used to do that? Jeez, that's a tough one. And I know this is the most important question. Mm-hmm. Um, I never write anything down. Okay. Uh, what I do is an idea comes to me. And I talk it out in the voice over and over and over until it in, sticks. In a room on your own? Yeah, and that's hard to find. Yeah. You know, out here, it's because it's so mad. I feel like I can walk around and, and talk to myself openly, but I am paranoid about people looking at me. <laughs> okay, and, so, you put, yeah. so to work on material, you'd have the idea, you'd, walk, you'd go for a walk somewhere near your house yeah. and just be talking out loud to yourself, working the stuff out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, okay. uh, the cabbie that I did. I'm so glad to hear this because a yeah. couple of days ago on this show, mm-hmm. one act, I can't remember who, I think it was Andrew Maxwell, mm-hmm. um, was uh, basically having a go at me for having tried something similar myself because yeah, he yeah. just thought that was preposterous. So no, I'm no. thrilled to hear that someone else has done it. Absolutely, absolutely. Because if you write something down, you create two yous. There's the real you and the written you. Okay. And that's why people have a hard time memorizing their own stuff. And I never could understand when people say, how do you memorize it? And I said, it should be easy because it's your own stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like um, the cabbie. I took a cab. Uh, my first week in London, I took a cab back to Ealing. It was 50 quid, but it was worth it because I got a good character. Yeah. And I was talking to the guy about going to France. I said, well, I got to go to France in May. Have you been to France before, sir? The French are the most atrocious, shitty people on the face of God's going They are <laughs> shit one and all, sir. And he just talked like that the whole fucking world about France. And they were shit. And then, uh, so, I, so that was the reality, was him just going, him just going after the French. So yeah. when I went home that night, I had his voice stuck in my head. Yeah. So I stayed up to about three going, hey, oh, shit, what an old sound. A lot of oh, shit. <laughs> and I just felt the face and the voice, and it felt really nice to talk like that. And then I wrote myself in as a character, reacting to him. Then I had to give it uh, a situation. I knew that it couldn't, I can't just go out and just do that voice beyond you know, two minutes and mm-hmm. expect it. You know, well, it's nice you did the voice, but what else are you going to So I had to write a, a, a storyline to it. And I, as I kept talking, I don't know how I came up with this, but it was... 
at one point, he says, the Muslims, we go off on the Muslims. And I say, he says, um, I should have picked up a phrase, but when I went to France, I learned how to speak things in French, like, listen, you snobby French cunt, I said, speak English. <laughs> and I, I say to him, I know, I wish they still spoke English in London, because, uh, the, you know, I live in this neighborhood, and they got a lot of, you know, I'm leading towards, and he goes, now, the Muslims are wonderful people. They're the most accepting, tolerant people in the face of all his green sir. They are wonderful. They are staunch advocates for freedom of speech and expression. Never had a bad... And the fact that he's so sarcastic, he's not sarcastic. But, yeah. the, but the bit is sarcastic. Sure. It's saying, it, and I'm trying to draw something out saying, well, it's perfectly fine to talk shit about the French, but yeah, sure. you cannot go down this road at all. And, yeah. and in order to do that, I've got this gormless cabbie that's kind of wrote the material for me. So, so his voice got implanted in my head. Okay. And then I don't, I don't write it down at all. I just rehearse and rehearse. I get in the shower and I talk to him. The shower is a great place. I will waste a lot of water. I would just stand there. <laughs> will that be all, sir? They all shit one and all, sir. <laughs> you know? And then uh, once, it, once it's there and it's locked in, then I just write down, uh, in, in a bigger show, like an hour show, I just write down cabbie, four minutes. Yeah. And then okay. that's it. Because the moment I write it down, I feel like I've, I've gone from something organic to something artificial. Okay. So uh, it doesn't sound stilted. Sure. And there's only three pieces I've ever written where I did actually want a stilted effect to the, to the delivery, which is one is the British Telecom Thank you for calling British Telecom. My name is Ahmed Vishnu. In what capacities might I engage a triumphant of my mind, body, and spirit in such configurations where in service to you as the customer will fully be actualized? And I had to type that out. I had sure. to get that, You know, because he takes two minutes to ask what the guy's name is. Yeah, okay. Because I love the way the Indians use a very eloquent 18th century style of, of sure. English. It's true. They really know how to use the language. And so that I wanted some sort of like almost stilted Joycean type language. Okay. But, but rarely, usually it's just organic talking to myself okay until it sticks like a sponge you know and so when you ended when you were ending up with 90 minutes worth of that material all of those mm-hmm. different characters mm-hmm. what decisions were you making as to the structure of the show were you what what kind of decisions did you make as to what would begin and end it or mm-hmm. how the segues would work because that's another mm-hmm. feature of, of your work much mm-hmm. like have you seen the pajama men Oh, love Do you know those guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. great. I mean, they, they're almost a sort of a, a, a similar sort of work to you, but mm-hmm. between the two of them. Absolutely, yeah. And, and all, all three of you really segue in between mm-hmm. different uh, characters and situations very, very smoothly. So mm-hmm. how, how do those happen? Is that you in a room on your own marking through the show or, or what? Well, like sometimes a, a bit will come to me. My average bit, like when I say bit, that could be up to, you could have at least up to five to ten voices in mm-hmm. a bit. So whatever the bit or vignette is, my average is two to three minutes. Uh, okay. But every now and then I'll have a, a character that's like uh, five to eight. So if something comes to me like that, I go, it's either a closer or an opener. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times I'll write a show and I, I'll write, um, you know, whatever the name of the closer is and then whatever the name of the beginning is. Mm-hmm. Or I'll just have a middle and I'll just, I'll write it out vertically. Like, you know, it's all got to go towards this end. Mm-hmm. Like the bit that I did have was I had the Peckham Fire Brigade. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know that one with yeah. the Peckham Fire Brigade? Yes, I see at this very moment, four children are trapped in a house, and he gives a speech to the firefighters, which, of course, takes five minutes. Yeah. Uh, before we leave here, what does it mean to be a firefighter? <laughs> As you make your way to 49 Bannum Road, take time to ask yourselves, who will save the children? <laughs> of course, the phone rings again. It's like, yes, I see him. It appears that great behemoth time has once more got the better of us. The <laughs> children have perished. But that, that's something that comes to me. Well, that's obviously a closer. Yeah. So stick it down at the end and... There's all sorts of tempo things, too. Like, um, okay. What I like to do is go... And then just... Uh, uh, Joyce kind of did it with Portrait of the Artist. Portrait of the Artist, as a young man leading up to Ulysses, he was going straight narrative into that, into Finnegan's Wake. And so okay. 
Does that make any sense? Yeah, like, a little like, bit. I, might, I haven't read any of those books, but I. So you I'm told me you were going to read them before the interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, read all your joys. I'm, I'm aware <laughs> of some of those things. I know that. Yeah. Um, it's like, well, it's like a Finnegan's Wake's like a mantra that you have to read yes, out loud. But, yes, that's the one. Yeah. But the whole thing is like, like I like to go from a speedy tempo to a to a slow tempo. Or there was one time uh, I took, I don't know how many bits I had, but what I did was I cut each bit in half. Um, so let's say like I had a. Uh, um, a, a football coach who was three minutes. I would cut him in half and move the first part here and then the second part there. Then the next bit I was going to do, which connected to the coach, I would cut that in half. And so the whole effect I was going for was uh, uh, like one of the Russian nesting dolls, which I, okay. I, I love those as a kid, man. I just so, like the smaller sure. they got, the macrocosm, microcosm. And so the whole show was basically we're going inward and then we're going outward again. That's uh, the the book Cloud Atlas does the same thing. I'm just keen to it does? I'm keen to prove that I've got oh. I have read a book. <laughs> My lord. But it does. Yeah, then yep. the, the movie as well. It's a really f- sort of fascinating technique where you rush towards something and then out the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's it's yeah, it's just layer with So what, layer. what what motivated that sort of a decision? Is it just that you're sort of wanting to explore and play with the different shapes mm-hmm. you can make your work? Yeah, um there's that and then there's also like um as far as content I did one show in San Francisco. What was great about San Francisco was much more than the UK, they, uh, they were cool with having the piss taken out of the PC culture. And they're very PC out there. Sure. And, and I'm one of those – comedians are very anti-authoritarian by nature. So if you tell me not to say a word, I'm really going to find a way to say that word. Yeah. You know? And uh, I remember I did – the show I did before I left there was just really – it was like all of the PC cows. Hmm. And, I, and I stacked them in order from – I began with an abortion doctor, mm-hmm. and then you know, which, which to me was just black humor, you know, just dark humor. And then I just gradually worked my way down, and then the very ending bit, which I rarely do a lot of tech anymore, which was a um, a stewardess uh, giving announcements on uh, how to prepare, you know, in, in case of an emergency. And I replaced all the stuff with Islamic stuff. So in, instead of safety card, I would pull up the Koran, uh, and uh, strap the seatbelts on. I, I had this bomb I made out of clay and wires. And the whole joke was the guy wasn't even Arab. So it's okay. like, a, anyway, uh, yeah, I'm a university of uh, Middle Eastern studies. Uh, yeah. And he's just this American that uh, it can't blow up the plane because it's crashing. Sure. So, so that you can hear the sound effects of the plane taking off. Something goes wrong. It's going down. And he's really frustrated. And he's like, okay. what are we going to do? He's miming like the, you know, I packed the bomb. If this plane goes down, could you say it was because of America? <laughs> and the whole joke was to move um, from what I saw in San Francisco is um, – the least offensive to the most offensive. Like, what what are the the biggest PC cows? And, and go in that order. Okay. Also, sex too. I, find, I like to close my shows with um, the one I'm doing now. Like, has the penultimate bit is is really sexy. Mm-hmm. It's a sexual harassment counselor who harasses his audience as they're uh, as he's talking about sexual harassment, <laughs> and it's exciting for me because I get to that point in the show where I'm feeling kind of. You know, horny. You know, and uh, <laughs> it's nice. And, uh, you know, so. But I, I have all sorts of reasons, personal or structural or. Okay. Know. So with, the, with some of that stuff about the, the political correctness stuff, yeah. do you ever run into problems with audiences that maybe don't read it in the same way that you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I had, uh, I had a girl tweet, uh, you know, that's why you should never search your name on Twitter. There was a girl that said it was the most misogynistic, anti-LGBT, anti-disabled show I'd ever seen. And I was about to write, you forgot racist. Uh, <laughs> Which is not, of course, but I want it to be sorry. It's, 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 it's this new religion, you know, and I always think that the ancient Jews couldn't say Yahweh or they get mm-hmm. stoned to death. And I think we live in a day and age now where it's, there's all these words that actually creates a bigger distance between people. You know, I'm a libertarian, okay. which is freedom of speech, 
at any cost. I mean, good speech, bad speech, or whatever. And I think too many people censor themselves, and because of that, we live in a sort of uh, this mundane illusion of, of we're all one people when we're not. I mean, the reality is we should be we should be able to just to talk directly. It's 2013, mm-hmm. and so when I read that, I thought, you know, first off, how can anybody be anti-disabled? You know, because the bit that she was referring to wasn't even about that. It was about it was an absurd bit that there's a guy with cerebral palsy who loses out to Daniel Day-Lewis for a character who has cerebral palsy. <laughs> okay. And that's the, whole, that's the whole bit. And it's actually, it's a commentary on the insincerity and inauthenticity sure. of the media age. Sure. That, think, that is my big enemy is the media age. And do, the, do you think then that that, because I mean, there's already just when you did that in a, in a kind of cerebral palsy mm-hmm. voice there, you mm-hmm. can immediately feel the tension in a room, certainly in the UK. I felt a lot of hatred, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, when you go on to explain that that's what the bit's about, there's yeah. a certain amount of, okay, okay, fine, this person yeah. isn't actually a monster. Yeah. Do you think... Do you think that you – what am I trying to ask? Do you think it's only okay to do that kind of voice if you're using it as a, as a piece of satire? Or mm-hmm. do you just think that anything is allowed, anything's fair game to I, – I think, I think anything's allowed. The only, I, the only time I get offended is intellectually. So if somebody's going up there and doing something that doesn't have any intellect or cleverness behind it. But to explain a bit, like I had an – was it – there was one day I had a 138 uh, gig in the afternoon – and I, I wanted to do that bit because it's a nice three-minute bit, mm. and it's easy, and you don't need any props. And but for some reason, I felt like I needed to just go. Okay, this is a bit that somebody said was anti-disabled, and I don't. I never do that mm. because you know if you see Chris Morris's Brass Eye special about the pedophilia, mm-hmm. it's obvious he's not a pedophile. It's obvious he's not advocating pedophilia. It's obvious he's he's going after an angle of the pedophile story, which is like mm. the sort of. Uh, you know the hyperactivity, the media, all that stuff, and mm-hmm. that's what he's going after. So he he wouldn't take time to stop and say, before I do this show, and I, and the thing is with my audiences, I always give them a lot of credit. I don't assume, I never assume my audiences are stupid, and I never want to talk down to them and say, um, before I do this bit, I should warn you, there's going to be some dirty words in there. Now I know you guys are all adults because that's what I feel about multiculturalism and and PC as a doctrine, like coming from San Francisco and having done the uh, academic route for a while. You know, I taught college for a while, and I remember hearing this stuff and just thinking this is going to be such a, a, a stricture on, on free speech, and it's going to make the illusion stronger, but it's not going to make the... It's going to restrain us artistically, hmm. you know? If we can't have freedom of speech, choice, or thought in what we do, and I, and I think there's a lot of people that come in that, that would like it if I talked down to them. That would say, I'm going to, tr- I know you're adults and I know you all have a sense of humor, but I'm going to actually talk down to you and, ex- and explain this. I don't feel mm. that's the role. I think that the role is that we both aspire upwards. We, we elevate the discourse. So uh, if I do a bit, that's obviously not about, aren't, you know, I've seen people go up and talk. If I was Scottish, I've seen some comedians go up here that I would be offended if I was a Scot because the whole act is, you Scottish people drink a lot. I mean, I mean, I drink a lot, but the Scottish people drink a lot. Mm. And I would be offended. It's like, that's all you got to say? Have you been to Scotland before? What do you know about this country? You come over here and you just latch onto that one thing. So that, to me, I, get, I would get offended there because there's no cleverness behind it. It's not saying anything profound or whatever. So Does that sound pompous? I know you said it's cool to be pretentious here. But, so. <laughs> do, you, do you find it hard to, to fit into the industry given that what you do is so, is so different? A bit, yeah, but it's better out here. Okay. Like out here, I've had more, I've had more uh, industry offers just in the short time that I've been here than I would have ever had in the States. 
um, because they, there is, there's no character comedy tradition out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the characters we do have, like Larry the Cable Guy, but he still does stand-up. He puts on the overalls, he chews tobacco, but he's still... He's basically a stand-up. He's a stand-up, yeah. Okay. And um, I, think there, I think there is still this desire in Britain for character comedy. So when I, I came out here, it was, I mean, my first film was like it was long overdue. You know, and they, everything about moving to a different country is, is so intimidating. It's like, no, you can't. I mean, if it was hard for me to move to New York as mm. from Missouri, it was even harder to come to the UK because this is the ultimate fantasy. You know, I saw this interview with John Lennon. They were going to deport him Remember in the mid 70s. And mm-hmm. they said, why do you want to stay if they want you out? He goes, because this is where the music comes from. And to me, this is where the comedy comes from. I mean, I am, as, you know, no matter what the state of comedy here now is, I'm, I'm in this country where the goons and Milligan and... Q and Monty Python and all this, all this stuff came out of you know. Have you been keeping? Have you been keeping up with British comedy since those moments of, of, uh, uh, of inspiration in your youth? Yeah, up to um, maybe up to Mighty Boosh. Okay, that's not that current, but but yeah, sure, yeah. That's I, I, I do get a little nervous about watching current things because I always like to stay like, you know, and it's ritualistic and it's it's neurotic, but I, I do like to stay a little bit ignorant of what's. What's okay. going on at the moment? Yeah. Okay. But, like, but uh, Bush, like I love Joey Bush. Ramone not listening to any other guitar music, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, okay. yeah. Just you kind of stay immune from any uh, being influenced. Because I remember seeing Mighty Boosh. I nearly wet myself on mm-hmm. the on the plane. But I just thought I, it was the one with the you guys know it with the the the, the, the bubble gum, the, the vacuum cleaner. Uh, I don't remember that. It was so surreal. I'm remember, familiar with the show. Yeah. Yeah, and then I got depressed because what will happen is I'll laugh and I go, "Oh God, it's all over for me." Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I just assume that there can't be two surreal people out there because sure. it, it, it's it is rare nowadays. It's a rarity nowadays. Yeah. But uh, and and I'm I'm surprised there hasn't been a Python repeat here. But I remember reading the the Python interviews and Cleese said um, that what happened was they were kind of a victim of their own success because nobody would do anything. Everybody was afraid to do anything that was even slightly like Python mm-hmm. because they would be afraid of people saying you're trying to do Python. Sure. Fry and Laurie did a few things like that, but n- there hasn't been, you know, there's the Q debate, whether Q was yeah. the forerunner. But, yeah. yeah. But when you, kind of, sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. When you, when you talk about seeing other stuff, I mean, that's something I and I'm sure a lot of other comedians mm-hmm. can relate to is seeing someone else be brilliant and going, oh, God, what's the point? Oh, or, yeah, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> do, you, um, do you suffer from, I mean, you mentioned oh, getting depressed from it. Mm-hmm. Do you suffer from, uh, from any kind of worries or problems or depression based on the, 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 the nature of this industry? This is a particular kind of top topic of mine because I'm suffering yeah. phenomenally from anxiety of work-related stuff. Yeah, terribly. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. I've had a lot of heartbreaks. You know, two, two, I took two of my podcasts down because I named people by name because mm-hmm. you do expect them to be human and they're not. And if you can accept that they're not human, you know, I know this sounds really bleak and Go ser- on. Who, serial who, killer. Who do you mean? Would you expect what partners? It, you expect partners to be human? I'm talking about industry. You, industry people. You expect I the understand. industry. To, I see. Yeah, you okay. expect them to be your friend. Yeah. You know, and you can't make that decision. You, you can't. Uh, you can't make that assumption. So you've named industry people, and then yeah, from years ago, been angry about from it years and, ago. Because I had an, there was an agent in New York, and and I was always trying to get an agent because I always thought once I get an agent, then I'll have that filter to be to be seen. And uh, my friend John Colliery, you know him from Dublin? I don't, I don't know. Great, great stand-up. Okay. And uh, a real good guy, real good Irishman. And he says, uh, we, live in, we live in this day where the industry is no longer a filter. Mm-hmm. It, actually, it actually wants to be creative. And that's a problem. And see, back in the day, they knew, they knew their place. 
we are just the people that have the means to get this heard and now they want to go what you should try to do is try to, but yeah but why wear a little red wig or something like that and then sure. and immediately their hands are involved in the in the and the art is gone python went to the bbc i love this the bbc exec came to the guys at python they didn't know what the hell they were doing they was just they were going to call it flying circus nobody knew what it was but the bbc exec came in and said we here at the bbc like to stay one step ahead of public opinion and that is such an anti-american approach mm. but the idea that we're going to stay one step ahead of public opinion thereby we're going to shape it yeah we're going to bring them something different i don't think they'd have that nowadays i think too many people would uh would get involved and 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 muck it up somehow so the uh the thing with uh the thing that really depressed me about that was uh i remember somebody one time read a uh read a review, uh, an interview that an agent uh, from la had, had given saying what they're looking for mm. and they said some of the most depressing words I've ever heard. They said, talent only plays a small part. What we're really looking for is somebody who's a good guy to hang out with. And I thought, I'm fucked. I'm fucked. I'm a good guy to hang out with, but I have to like the people I hang out with. Yeah. You know, that's the problem. Sure. That's why I, a lot of people from L.A. I just don't like. I have friends down there, but, but if, if it's like they're a salesman, I can't fake it. I would rather be smoking by myself, having a beer, watching an old movie. You know, life's too short. And I, I've never been good at that. Right. Okay. So you're with so and so. It's a totally different mindset, and and, yeah. and I I blame the working class aspect on that sometimes, and then other times I realize I'm just happier not getting too much into that. If they want to work with me, that's fine, but just don't pin your hopes too much on it. The the beauty is the live shows. The beauty is as frustrating as this festival can be sometimes. The beauty is doing those random slots. You know, or doing something like this, or or getting on and doing ten minutes at some bar in the middle of nowhere, and and that's that's the rock and roll part of it, and that's the thing I forget a lot. You are know? you are you hoping that the move to the UK will result in? I mean, or is, is it kind of it's an escape from those sort of producer led things? Are you? Yeah. Okay. See, what I want is very simple, and and uh, last year I got an agent, and I was uh, you know ten years I've been trying to get an agent, and I finally get one, and it's like you know it was real quick. It was like. Right, right, right. You know, and, and this year, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm talking to people, but I'm much more honest this time. Last year, I was a little scared, and I was like, "Don't mess it up. You yeah, might have sure. an agent." You know, and it's like sure. with, it's like with women. You know, and I, no no offense, but you know, as a man, no matter how much we say we've progressed, you still have to pretend that you're not that interested. You know, and it's hard when you're really interested, and you think, "Oh my gosh, this pretty agent wants to work with me." <laughs> oh, my gosh, see, Dad was wrong. I am important, you know, and all this psychological stuff comes to the fore. And this year, I'm just really clear with what I want. See, last yeah. last year they were because they're thinking film and TV. I want to be on film and TV. I would love to be on film and TV. Chris Morris did some wonderful things with TV, and for some reason, he got to do it his own way, which is a rarity. I mean, complete creative control. That's brilliant. But. This year, when I'm meeting with people, I'm saying, you know what? The most important thing for me is to stay in this country and do those little gigs out in Neath or Beckles or Lowestoft or wherever that is. It's because delightful you, to hear those I words in your I accent. I love those places, man. I love yeah. it. And then when you make a group of strangers, like, like a group of 40 out in the middle of nowhere laughing, you get 100 quid, and you can go off and buy a pork pie – and a can of Stella. To me, that's it. That's all I want. And I, I know I'm aiming low. I know I'm really aiming low. But I like that. You know, I like the people I meet. And the, you know, I, I got to get a car because the train gets rubbishy after a while. But uh, that's it. That's all I want. 
I get to do my weirdness in front of people. You know? That's fair. It's very brave. I can certainly relate to those uh, meetings with industry people where you're thinking to yourself, I've got to say something to impress this person. Mm-hmm. And then coming to it years later and yeah. thinking, no, what I have to say is actually what I want. What you want. And if yeah. that's actually what they want, then it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And if it isn't, then I'm going to be trapped in some... How many times have you had a girlfriend and uh, it's the same story? You didn't tell her what you wanted. And, you know. I, always tell, I always tell them what I want. You do? No, I never can. I'm too. Uh, I'm British in that regard. I, I don't, would it be possible? I'd like maybe just one day if you possibly. I, <laughs> I mean, just if you could take take your clothes off one day. I mean, that's all. That's all. I mean, nothing. Don't do anything. Just take clothes off. Yeah, good call. Yeah. I am a bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got just sort of five minutes or so before we wrap up. Um, if it's all right with Will, oh. I, I know, man. It's, it's this flies. is so fun, man. No, thanks. Thank oh, you. God, um, cool. Uh, I think we should give you the opportunity to ask questions if anyone would like to ask any questions. Sure. That one over here. Yeah, go for it. Okay, there's a good yeah, question. So yeah. how much does the weirdness drive you and how much do you drive the weirdness? And is there ever the case that it can go too far? I think it goes too far when you forget, uh, when you get wrapped up in just the structure, when you're just trying to like razzle-dazzle with, uh, you know, oh, and then a clever segue or whatever. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think if you forget the comedy, yeah, it can go too far. Like um, when people tell me something's interesting, I hate that. It's like mm-hmm. it's not, no, but how many times did you laugh? Because at the end of the day, I'm a comedian, you know, and it's about... We have to have our ears fucked by laughter so often, or father was right. It's it's just weird it, to me. It's very primal, you know. So, but um, I think the the weirdness is always there. You know, I felt very isolated and weird as a kid, and uh, I think it was just a natural outpour. I had I had a friend when I was fourteen, and I used to make weird words by myself. I used to love to look in the mirror and go schnaka. You know, that's the kind of shit I would do to entertain myself to pass the time. And I remember we had a painting class with this kid, and he was doing that too. And yeah. we became best friends. And I was, like, and I remember I just asked him, like, "Are you weird too?" And that was the only other. You, you're a weirdo too. It's amazing. And I thought I was the only one. And then when I heard when I when I read Beckett and and uh, Monty Python and Frank Zappa, it was like, "There's yeah, okay, there's this can be done." You know. So do do you think there's uh... Obviously, you're doing your stuff because you're you're expressing yourself. You're recognizing. You're celebrating your own weirdness. Mm-hmm. Does that have a, a healing effect? This is a, it's a favorite question of mine. Do you, do you think it's helping that you're expressing it and getting it out there? D- does it help you resolve the issues with wanting to impress dad? Mm. I think as long as your motivations are clear, that, that everything's like it's okay. Like as, if as far we talked about the industry tonight, like. If I put any hope in the industry or, or start thinking in terms of money or whatever, I forget it, you know? Jerry Maguire. You guys seen Jerry Maguire? Brilliant yeah. movie. I mean, I know it's mainstream, but it's when he says, I want to take you back to that little kid who first played football. It wasn't just about the money, was it? Hmm. And there was, there was a good two years there where I forgot. I forgot what it was about. And it was about the money and like, oh, this guy got that, but where's my thing on the poster and this shit like mm. that. So when I do The Fringe now, it's just like I go up, I show up, and I'm really glad when people dig what I do, you know, because it does feel like I connected to something. And then it, and in that sense, when you meet a when you meet a fan who shows that he appreciates you and appreciates your madness and all that stuff, it does kind of nullify that those childhood fears, you know, that uh, you weren't quite fitting in somehow, or you know, you weren't doing the ordinary thing. And then in that sense, it does pay off when you realize you're not alone in your madness and that an audience connects with you, then that, that's what it's all about. And it does nullify that, that pain. That's a great answer. <laughs> that's a great answer. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Will Franken. Thank you, guys. Thank you.
So that was Will. Gigged with him just the other night, in fact, at Damien Larkin's gig in Stoke. And it was excellent to see his, you know, pretty weird and esoteric stuff just smashing it on a Saturday night club environment. It, obviously a great gig for him, but it also made me respect the otherwise very straight-seeming audience, really, for letting themselves get caught up in Will's very finely tuned brand of madness. He's, uh, he's, I mean, he's been doing it for a while now, hasn't he? And he's obviously, he's not just a weirdo. Uh, he is very good at taking people with him which i think some comics who do more odd unusual sort of stuff it can you know sometimes they feel like they're lost in their own world will very definitely in his own world but very very uh, adept at drawing you into it as well so do catch him if you can check out his website willfranken.com there's loads of links there to his own podcasts long form sketch recordings loads of audio and he's got bundles of stuff on youtube so fill your boots Thanks very much to Pete Jones, James Lowey and Ben Lund-Condlin. As ever, uh, this show was co-produced by Nathan Wood. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. I'll speak to you next week with punnery sergeant major Tim Vine. See ya! (laughs) 